Hey, this is the Brains Podcast. I'm Julian Shapiro. And I'm your co-host, Cortland Allen. Today, we're sitting down with two best-selling authors. James Clear is the author of Atomic Habits, and Mark Manson is the author of The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. These two are the world heavyweight champions of nonfiction books, and it shows in their numbers. Between the two of them, they've sold close to 20 million copies, and they've earned tens of millions of dollars in the process. In this episode, we ask James and Mark to break down their process for how they write books and blog posts that reach millions of people all over the world. And we also talk about the economics of book writing and why it can be lucrative to publish a traditional book, despite the fact that we live in an increasingly digital world. So many nonfiction books strike me as what should have been a blog post, but then got stretched to 300, 400 pages of just unnecessary filler. And a lot of the time, it feels like the author wrote a book just to be able to go get speaking gigs. Mm. You know, the truth is most topics are not, they don't warrant a 250-page book. The voice you're listening to belongs to James Clear. The 4-Hour Workweek is a great example because that's a very sticky, very memorable title. It's very catchy, but you naturally have a lot of questions that follow out of that. You're like, well, how do you actually work four hours a week? What would you do? What would the steps be? Like, you know, what mistakes do people make? There's all kinds of stuff to discuss that naturally flows from that one little idea. And um, that, I think, actually warrants, you know, a full book. A lot of things don't uh, don't require that amount of um real estate to get through the idea and to get the crux of it. Mm. One of the examples I give a lot is um, there's a point later in Atomic Habits where I talk about deliberate practice in one of the chapters, and it could have been a book about deliberate practice with a chapter on habits, but instead it was a book about habits with a chapter on deliberate practice. And the difference in how those two books would have sold, I think is enormous. And so I think packaging is a really big part of writing a book that sells well and also just writing a book that lands with people well and that they remember. Yeah, one of my favorite examples of packaging is how Morgan, who wrote The Psychology of Money, he took the best performing blog posts from his site, right? Those with the most traffic. And then he just sandwiched them together as chapters in his book. And so that's how he de-risked that people would love the book because he knew they already loved the posts. Well, it's important. Mark, didn't you do that too? It wasn't, um, the title uh, yeah, was think- a previously a blog post, right? Yeah, I think honestly, I think well, most of our generation of nonfiction guys do that. Like you, you beta test, you beta test ideas. Right now, you're listening to Mark Manson. You know, I've got an idea for a chapter. Would people actually read that chapter? Okay, well, let me put it in an email newsletter and see how people respond. And then if people don't respond, then it's like, okay, definitely not writing that chapter. There's really no downside to doing it that way because you you have to write the material anyway if you ever want to write the book. So you're not wasting your time by writing it, you know, before the book is put together. You get feedback from the audience initially too on the ideas. And so a lot of times they'll poke holes in the argument and strengthen it for the book version so you can figure out what you need to add and layer on. Um, and then you get to build an audience along the way, which when the time comes and you actually have the book ready, now you have somebody to, you know, actually share it with. So it's kind of like, it's like the first draft of your book is building your audience. So if you already have this, this huge audience, you're already blogging. Uh, the question that comes to my mind is like, why even progress to this next step of writing a book? It's a great question. We ask ourselves this all the time. We could be doing it entirely <laughs> wrong. I don't know. I feel like I may need to change my business model. I, I, I've got two answers to that. I've got a, I've got a cynical one and, and kind of an idealistic one. So here, I'll give you the cynical answer first. It, money. Like it's, yeah. you, you will make, 
10 times as much money selling 100,000 copies of a book than you will having a blog post that that's read by 10 million people. Um, it's just if as a writer, like the economics of book writing are still, um, you know, I will, let me, let me actually correct that. Like if you, I think if you have a very small audience, the economics of, of blogging mm -hmm. or focusing on social media is probably better than the economics of book writing. But like, once you have an audience, the economics of book writing is, um, it's the best. And it, and it's also, there's a longevity to it that doesn't exist online. Like, I don't remember, you know, it's like, I, I don't remember Tim Urban's great post from six years ago. I don't go back and read it, but it's like, you know, Atomic Habits is always on my shelf. Right. Um, and it's, and it, it, in books. So that's kind of the cynical business answer. And then kind of the more idealistic or I guess emotional answer is just that, People have kind of this irrational emotional attachment to books. Um, there's a lot of cultural history and heritage. People treat you differently, you know? So, I mean, mm -hmm. just just my parents, right? Like, even when I was a really successful blogger and was selling tons of courses and had millions of readers, you know, my parents still kind of had this attitude towards me of like, you know, when are you going to get a real job? <laughs> um and and uh and then as soon as the book came out and it hit the New York Times list like suddenly it's like oh my god Mark, Mark's an author <clears throat> I think another answer to that like so far we've just discussed it mostly from the author's perspective but there's a really good reason to write a book from the reader's perspective too I mean yeah sure I hope that my blog posts are more useful than the average one that's out there but my book is even better because that's where you get the best of my writing because I had to I was forced to think through all of it and then there's a huge benefit on the word of mouth side um, because books are a single unit. And so it's very easy to share that. You should just say, hey, you should read that book. And so it's, it spreads instantly throughout conversation versus telling somebody, hey, I have 18 blog posts from this person I really like reading. And then like sending them all the links is just way messier to do it that way, even if it's the same amount of information. Yeah, I, I, I'll add that like I think there's something... You know, the medium in which we receive information is very like we were talking earlier about the difference, you know, how a tweet is not very sticky. Like you you read it, you're like, that's cool. And then 30 yeah. seconds later, you forgot what you just read. Um, I think context matters a lot and that a book forces you to sit quietly and think actively, like think about these ideas um, kind of in a vacuum for long periods of time. You know, when you're reading a blog post, You've got your email open and another tab. You've got your like instant messaging with somebody. You've got music going. Like there's all this stuff going on. I mean, I think Mark, what you're kind of getting at there is books are very a very durable form of ideas. Power of Habits still selling half a million copies. You know, a decade later, uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People still selling. You know, hundreds of thousands of copies every year, thirty years out. And even if you can imagine like some super viral post that got five million views, you know, in 2010 it's not getting 5 million views now. It's not as, um, even though it may be spread faster, it's not as durable for some reason. I don't know the answer why to that, but books seem to yeah. be a little more of a durable package for ideas. Well, I mean, you, you can even take that even to a further extreme, which is like, we still read books from the 18th and 19th centuries. We don't read newspapers from the 18th or meditations. And 19th centuries. I mean, you know, Marcus yeah. Aurelius 2000 years old. We still read that book, yeah. you know? Yeah. What's interesting is the books also have signal about, the extent to which they've actually been edited. So like I'm default skeptical of a blog post because there's a good chance this dude basically had nobody read it. Uh, but when I see a, <laughs> see a book, I'm like, okay, you know, there's a, there's an institution 
regardless of what you think about institutions, that was like, this isn't shitty. I'll put this into the public. <laughs> but part of this reflects me hunting for writers who actually don't write on a fixed cadence. Or put another way, like if someone's writing bi-weekly, it's a signal they're trying to hit a deadline because they got a newsletter to grow or something. But if someone's writing sporadically, like Paul Graham, they're only releasing something when they actually have something to say. Mm. There's this pervasive myth that you have to stay top of mind through frequency, which I don't think is true. I think you have to stay top of mind through signal, which basically be, means being very high quality and not dropping off the fucking map. But you got to be there some of the time. You got to have some frequency. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, things have changed a lot too. Mark probably has a better perspective on this than I do because you've been writing for, for longer, been online and blogging for longer. But even in my window of writing, I can see the bar has raised online. I mean, it's so different now than it was five years ago or eight years ago. I mean, it's it it used to be that just showing up consistently actually could earn you a good amount of readers uh, because there just weren't that many people that did it. And that still is, there's still a lot of value to consistency, but um, it has to be really good. The quality matters now. I kind of think there was a little bit of a before and after moment um, when Tim started publishing, you know, his AI post and the Elon series and all that stuff. And it was kind of like, I mean, he went overboard, right? Like he, uh, you know, he wrote 90,000 words for a blog post or something. Um, but it was so high quality that it kind of changed, um, I think, what people expected from uh, from a blog post uh, to do it that way rather than just getting reps in. What I think would be cool is if we look at an example of this, like if we take something that went viral because it had quality. Um, let me pull this open here. So this is the most viral thing I've ever written. It's been seen by many millions of people. And it reads like this. People don't have short attention spans. They finish three-hour Joe Rogan episodes. They binge 14-hour shows. What they have is short consideration spans. They must be hooked quickly. Point. Don't fear making great in-depth content, but ensure your first minute is incredible. So what is going on there? Like, why did that go so viral? Well, you need that contrast. I mean, Mark is exceptional at this. You know, like this is one of the things. So subtle art of not giving a fuck. So actually fuck is like the least subtle word ever. Right. And so it's the <laughs> contrast between the two that yeah. makes that really surprising. Um, one of the most sticky ideas from atomic habits, like you don't rise to the level of your goals, you fall to the level of your systems. There's this contrast. It inverts the, the typical expectation. And you see that a lot of the time with really good book titles. So like the life changing magic of tidying up, like uh, tidying up seems like a very small thing, but now you're telling me it's life changing. You need you need that contrast between what's expected and what you're delivering. And so, um, you know, to a certain degree, Julian, like your little uh, tweet there, it has that as well. It's got this typical narrative says long form stuff doesn't work. We don't have a short attention spans, but actually, um, you know, you're able to invert that. And I think the other thing is it's like pretty tightly compressed too. like you need to be able to provide the contrast, but not be long winded about it. Um, you know, another example is like rich dad, poor dad, boom, immediately there's this like contrast between the two. And then he kind of unpacks it a little bit more in the subtitle. Like what the, what is it? It's like what the rich tell the teach their kids that the poor and middle-class do not. And so, um, you know, if you can, anytime you can take something people expect, provide a strong point of contrast and do it in a pretty compressed way, um, it tends to be attention grabbing. There's got to be some meat behind it too, but um, I don't know. Compression is key because I think the, the, the poignancy comes from it being so dense. Like if I took that same idea and made it a full blog post, 
it's like, okay, that, that was a clever blog post, but it's not, it doesn't hit you hard with the dopamine at the end. It's not poignant, you know? It Was that on social media? Yeah, that was on Twitter. And then there's apparently a cottage industry of folks who uh, copy paste threads and then post yeah. them on LinkedIn and kind of huh. credit you. And so I keep getting my name <laughs> tagged on LinkedIn all the time for this quote. And I'm like, is this what I want to be known for? Is like Joe Rogan? Yeah, well, and you've you've got, I, I agree with everything James said. And then on top of that, you've got the uh, the short consideration span. I think anytime you can kind of invent your own term, right. um, mm-hmm. that kind of surprise, you know, it was like, wow, I've never thought about having a consideration. So like, you know, it, it like that's... Um, that's kind of the magic of the compression is that you give it, a, you take this idea that takes a whole paragraph and now you just gave it a word. And so yeah. like that, yeah. that suddenly it strengthens the contrast. And also I think part of the magic of the concision and the compression is that people like things that they discovered on their own more than they like things that others have taught them or told them about. We really like to learn from our own experiences. It just rings more true when we do. And so if you keep a proverb really concise and really sparse, so all the information isn't there, then people have to sort of finish the puzzle. They have to compare the proverb to their own experiences and their own lives. And then when they discover that it actually matches up and it rings true, they really buy into it much more. So it helps to keep things concise and let people figure out some of what you're trying to say on their own. It's a great point. I don't know exactly how to do that well, but occasionally I'll stumble into it. And it it's like hitting the idea at like the what right you, level dude, of what, abstraction. What, what, you know? what are you talking? Dude, you're like the compression king. <laughs> no, no, you, no. You were... What I mean is the... <laughs> What I mean this is, is the, humility, um, masterclass the humility right getting the abstraction <laughs> right so that it like plants the seed but doesn't mm-hmm. tell them everything, and then they can they can uh, take it and, like run with it from there, you know? Yeah, um, it, it it's funny because it's I feel like um, compression is really winning online right now, like in the attention economy. Um, I think partly just because so like ev- pretty much every medium is so saturated these days um, that it's whoever it's kind of a battle of like who can get it shorter and pithier um and well, Mark, that's I your mean, point G- earlier about compre- uh, packaging you know like it's, yeah. it's packaging the ideas up in a more uh viral spreadable way in a sense you yeah. can think about each word as like an obstacle to virality like the mm. the longer and more winded uh long-winded it is the less likely it is to spread by word of mouth because for it to spread by word of mouth it either needs to be really condensed so you can just press one retweet button and not 20 or um, it needs to be something you can just share in you know three words. So the the tighter it is, the easier it can spread. Well, let's, let's talk about this in the context of, of books, because I know a lot of people who've written books, really popular books that they're very proud of. Uh, and that usually means getting a few thousand sales or 10 or 50,000 sales if they're really good. Whereas the two of you are like, I don't know, I think Mark, you're at like 13, 14 million sales. And like James, you're like three or 4 million book sales, which is like astronomical, like just crazy numbers. Like if if your books were startups, you guys would be like the Google and the Amazon of nonfiction books. Um, what's the difference? You know, what is it that makes some books take off into the stratosphere compared to the sort of average book that's well written and well marketed, but doesn't reach even a tenth of those numbers? Man, I wish I knew I, I would do it again. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, it's it's. I think it's it's like any creative medium where um you know the the 90 percent of the book sales go to one percent of the books and then you know 90 percent of those book sales go to the 0.1 percent of books or whatever like it's an extremely Mm. 
the the curve on book sales is is extremely exponential. And so I think you know the difference between like James and I's books versus say like you know kind of your your standard nonfiction book that like does well but maybe is not like you know just crushing it year after year. It's probably you know five percent better, ten percent better. Um, but it's like that that ten percent of difference results in like hundred x of results. And it's hard too because all these things like you have no idea when you're in the process of doing them. So like, um, you know, my agent and I agonized for a long time whether we should even submit the subtle art of not giving a fuck as a as a potential title. Like we almost didn't even submit it submit it to publishers. But I think the general answer to your question, I think this is true for a lot of areas of life. It's not just writing books, but um, success is rarely the result of one thing, but failure can be. And so like, if tweet you, that. if you, yeah, tweet that, um, if you, uh, if you get good sleep tonight, that does not guarantee that you're going to have a good day tomorrow or that you're going to be productive or whatever. But if you only get two hours of sleep tonight, that's enough to wreck the whole day. So just getting good sleep does not say anything about whether you're productive or efficient. Um, it's the same thing is true for, you know, for books, like just writing a good, a good title does not mean you're going to sell 5 million copies. That just means that you have a good title. And, you know, that's true for every step of the way, having good chapter titles, having great stories, uh, compressing the writing, packaging the ideas well. And then it's true on the marketing side, like just getting an interview on CBS this morning does not guarantee that the book is going to sell well, uh, or just getting featured on, you know, Tim Ferriss's podcast or in a newsletter or whatever, like you need, you need all of that stuff. And I think that's one reason it's really hard. Like people, people like to be able to point to one reason for why a book takes off, but there is not one reason. There are many reasons and you need them all working in concert together. And if you, most people don't have the patience for that. First of all, like they don't have the patience to just, well, most people don't have the patience to finish a book. So that like rules a ton of people out. <laughs> then uh, if you actually can do that and most people don't have the patience to write a book well, which usually takes like an additional year or two on top of just simply being able to finish one. Then if you can get all that done and actually like write a good book, most people don't have the patience after having spent two or three or four years on that part, to go into a whole year of marketing and actually plan out an actual launch strategy do you know like i did i had 75 podcasts recorded and scheduled to release during the week of atomic habits so that meant i was doing podcast interviews for months before the book came out i did 200 interviews in the first by the time the book had been out for six months um you know that's on top of all the other stuff i was doing with email newsletter and you know all that stuff and none of that is actually writing the book right like that's all separate from right. having said like oh you actually wrote a good book so the hardest thing about books is that all of the gratification is delayed um you have to do all of that work all of the writing all the editing all the marketing maybe well maybe like 80 percent of the marketing all that before you've sold a single copy that's all done before launch day so there's it's all work up front and no reward uh for doing it and the truth is most people just don't have the patience for it or the ability to delay gratification that long whether that's for financial reasons or just um, you know mentality and makeup or um, desire whatever it is there there are many reasons why it might fall of course but there are a lot of things you need to get lined up and um, most people are not interested in working for four years before they sell a single copy that's another reason to do julian like what you were mentioning earlier about sharing your work along the way 
it's important to feel like you're winning along the way. Like I already had a good life as a blogger and doing, I was already doing the stuff I wanted to do. If I had to like put all that off for five years before I could finally be an author, then, you know, that's no fun. Nobody wants to suffer, purely suffer for five years. Like you need to have wins along the way. I want to add something as well um, that James touched on. Like it's, it's a lot of authors have this attitude of, well, I wrote the book, my job's done. Like, what do you mean you want me to to go on, get up at 6 a.m. and go on radio shows? Like, I don't want to do that, you know? And it's, I, w- I have been consistently shocked by how low the expectations are with publishers of what an author will do. Um, every, for both of my book launches with Harper, um, n- not only were my, was my publisher like, impressed by the amount of marketing I did myself and the amount of work I did and the amount of interviews I scheduled myself. Um, they, they were like absolutely floored. Like it's, it's people told me they're like authors don't do this. And I think a lot of this comes from kind of, you know, James and I do it. Ryan holiday does it like people who kind of like the blog, the people who started out entrepreneurially as bloggers, as internet marketers, like we all do this very naturally because we're used to having pr- to promote ourselves. Like we're used to being the only ones like responsible for getting people to go buy our stuff. Um, so to me, it was just very, it's like, of course I'm going to do like a hundred podcast interviews. Of course I'm going to get up at 6am and do radio shows. Um, and, but you know, f- a- a- according to the people I know in the publishing world, like that, that is, it's a shockingly rare thing for authors to do that. Um, and usually when they do do it, they do it kicking and screaming. Um, they they do it basically because like their agent is forcing them to. I'm not sure where that comes from because like you're not entitled to anybody to read your work. You know, like that's not, it has to be earned. It's your job. It's not just your job to write the words. It's also your job to find the readers. Like it's not the reader's job to find you. Um, and I, so you have to have like that mentality that it's on you to, to get the word out, not just to, to write about it. Yeah, if you're just making something for its own sake, that makes you an artist. But the second you care about other people finding what you've created and using it and adopting it and maybe paying for it, Mm. that makes you a business. And you can't reasonably expect business-like outcomes if you're going to put in artist levels of input, right? (laughs) You can't just only focus on making the thing and nothing else, none of the marketing, nothing else, and then expect people to like find it and pay for it. Uh, But I see this in pretty much every industry. Like I talk to a lot of software engineers who will build a project or a website or an app and they'll put it online and they'll be like, okay, well, here's the part where people show up, right? And like, of course that doesn't happen. Nobody shows up to download it or use it. Like only in like the most rare stories does that actually happen if you don't do the rest of the work. And you see the same thing with musicians. You know, a lot of musicians complain about the record labels taking such a huge cut. And it's like, well, they're doing all the marketing and the distribution. They're a huge part of your business. Like, of course they're taking a huge cut. Like you kind of got to put up with that unless you're willing to put on your entrepreneur hat. So I'm not surprised that it's the same way with writing books. This is a really good point and something that I think this applies to almost anything in life. But if you're going to really go after something, you need to deconstruct what it takes to do it well. And so, you know, like when I was working on Atomic Habits, I as I was planning out the launch and still working and refining the book or whatever, I talked to like 20 to 25 different authors who all were nonfiction authors, all had blogs or newsletters or whatever, kind of like me. 
and they all had books out. And so I asked them like, what, you know, what worked well for you? What didn't work well? Um, what did you learn? If you were going to do this over again, what would you repeat? Like, I mean, it doesn't take much energy to ask and they can just say no if they want to, but you'd be surprised how much you can learn just by trying to deconstruct what that specific outcome looks like and what's involved. The, the thing that I think people actually have the most difficulty with is figuring out how to come up with interesting stuff in the first place. I put myself in positions often to teach stuff to people who are really smart. So like I'll actually use it as a hook to talk to someone like, hey, you want to learn about growth marketing? Um, let's dive into copywriting or something. By forcing myself to teach very smart people, I'm putting myself in a position to get asked very good questions I don't yet have the answer to. And every time I answer a question, I'm like, oh, I have no idea. Let me think about that. When I'm in that generative phase prompted by the question, if I say anything interesting in my response, I write it down immediately. And so about 80% of my content comes from that exact process. Then 20% is basically just noting when I have strong counter opinions to things I come across. Like I'll look at the most engaged tweets on Twitter that week using TweetDeck. And I'm like, this is clearly wrong. And then I'll write down my reaction and try to justify it persuasively. So my question for you two is, like, what is your content engine? My, my, uh, I've noticed over the years that my idea generation is pretty much directly proportional to how much I'm reading, um, and reading like good, interesting books. Like it's, if I stop reading good, interesting books for a while, I suddenly like find myself like, wow, I don't really have any good ideas this week. Um, it's reading other smart ideas and, and doing kind of what you just described, whether it's. Sometimes it's disagreeing. Like sometimes I read something, and I'm like, "Wow, I re that really doesn't gel with what I think." You know, why is that? Maybe I should like look into why that is. But also, um, for me, it tends to be more like co combining two disparate ideas. So like maybe I'm reading a book about finance, and I'm like, "Wow, that really actually relates to my understanding of like, um, you know." idea generation and blog articles like this was actually a, a connection i made a few months ago it was like seeing uh seeing like ideas as like stocks in a market you know and like a stock will like an idea stock will go up it'll become very popular but then it starts to become trendy to go against that idea and so people you know being contrarian to that idea is very popular so it's like the stock of that idea like drops but then when it gets too low when the va actual value of the idea is actually higher than what the public considers the idea, that's when you buy in and start promoting it again. Um, and you look like a genius because you're promoting something that most people have discounted, you know? So it's like, I, you know, so like I, I, you that's know, brilliant. I was reading a finance book and, and like some, the, just over the course of reading the chapters, that kind of like pop, like came into my head. Um, if I, if I'm not reading that finance book, then that never happens. And I've noticed too, that it's, I, I pretty much never read self-help books. I pretty much never read, uh, like personal development books, productivity books, um, it because those ideas don't pop up. Like it's it's too close, you know. It's like to get something really original and interesting, I need to read stuff. I need to read economics or history or uh, science um, or something like that. I think I'll mostly echo Mark's sentiments on you know like it's mostly just about reading more uh, for having good ideas, but. If you step one level up from that, I think it's really about curating information flows and trying to figure out like, how do I get the highest input, highest quality information coming to me? So, you know, like pretty much every thought you have is downstream from what you consume. 
um, or something you experience maybe if you're not consuming it. And if you take that idea seriously, it really matters where the inputs are coming from. You know, this is why I say like, when you choose who to follow on Twitter, like you're choosing your future thoughts, you know, like you, people don't think about it like that. They just press follow and think I'm following an interesting celebrity or I'm following a thought leader or whatever, but you're choosing the ideas that are going to be coming to you in the future days and weeks and so on. And you want to be really careful about what that information flow looks like. Um, you know, I've spent a lot of time thinking about who I follow on Twitter. And so I pretty much get ideas. Like every time I jump on there, you know, there's something to build upon or, you know, add to or whatever. Yeah. And I think another thing that I see you guys as being good at, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is filtering down these ideas to pick not just the ones with the strongest appeal, but the ones with the broadest appeal to the most people. So if you take a book like Atomic Habits, who doesn't want to have better habits? It doesn't matter if you are an engineer or a janitor or a CEO or a stay-at-home mom, everybody wants better habits. Or Mark, your book, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. Who doesn't want to give less of a fuck? Like we all want to be more carefree and happy in life. And so instead of writing about tiny niche topics that only appeal to a few people, we're both writing about these very broad topics that appeal to almost everybody. Mm. And I feel like that has to contribute to why you're able to sell millions of books. And uh, I think about it within a book as well. Like the big general universal argument should be made on the cover and in chapter one. And then like in chapter eight, if you want to get really detailed about something that that's fine, like you're deep enough in the book now that you can do that. Um, and so it's some of its sequencing of the ideas and figuring out like when to go deep and when to stay broad. And then I'll try to give like three or five bullet points of how it applies to entrepreneurship or creativity or productivity or whatever. And that uh, having a range of examples allows me to be really niche maybe with the example that I give. But because I'm tying it back to a larger idea, I don't have to worry too much about alienating all the readers. They can, they can just read through that example and move on to the next one and it's fine. But I was also able to get like kind of a clever, very detailed example in for a certain subset of the community. You guys are so strategic about how you've written and marketed your books that it raises the question of why not just do it all yourselves? Like why not self-publish and keep as much of the profit as you possibly can rather than going with a traditional publisher who's going to basically just pay you a smaller amount in royalties? A lot of internet people tend to underestimate like what the publisher brings you. And, you know, we already mentioned, Julian already mentioned editors. Like I think editors are just such a underrated uh, thing and and especially like a good editor like if you get a really good editor who works at a publisher and works at like on the high end best selling books like the quality of that editor versus like somebody you just get off Fiverr is is night and day like a really good editor at a big publisher it will absolutely tear your writing apart and make it so much better and uh, so I think that's underestimated and then just the dis distribution um, you know and and kind of the the gatekeeping of a of a traditional publisher. You know, it's, it's, I know people like us buy all of our stuff online and we're happy to buy an ebook from directly from somebody, but something like 60, 60% of book sales still happen in brick or mortar stores. Um, if you want to get, if you want to sell your book in India or Brazil or Spain or Russia, like you need to get a publisher. Um, so it, it's, there's still so much untapped, uh, potential audience or a potential customer that like you can't even with the best online presence like you still can't reach them or monetize them effectively um and then the last thing i'll say is that you know i the tradition traditional media i think is far less important it's <laughs> traditional media is becoming less relevant each year but um it still matters i mean like if you want to be on the new york times list like 
you need to have a you need to have a publisher if you want to get invited on the CBS Morning News. Like you have to have a publisher um, if you want to have a be profiled in the Wall Street Journal. Like you have to have a publisher. Like they these people like will not talk to you unless you have a, a traditional publisher behind you. Quick note on that point, Mark James. When I saw you on like Good Morning America or some show, I was nervous for you. I was like, oh, oh go go for it, James. Do it, crush it. I was like living through you. I was like, oh my god, what would I do if I was sitting there? Uh, you crushed it, though. But the, the, the super last question... I, I was have, nervous for me, too. <laughs> is um, who do you guys think is really good at this game? I mean, there's so many people um, that I look up to for different reasons or that I like aspire to you know do work like what they do for various reasons. I mean, I love looking at people outside of our industry, too. So, like... Taylor Swift or Drake, um, these people are masters of marketing launches. Like, you know, um, Lizzo had one of her songs and she decided to do a remix of it and she chose Ariana Grande for it. That is not like just a random decision. It was a very strategic choice to do the remix with her because it's like adjacent to her audience, but also opens her up to like a whole different segment that she didn't have before. Like, you need to look at how some of these creators are doing things and realize that there's a game behind a lot of these choices. And I love seeing examples of stuff like that. Um, I like Brene Brown and Malcolm Gladwell as examples of like authors trajectories that I would like to follow uh, to certain degrees. Like they produce books, you know, consistently, but not every year or even every other year. And each time they come out with a book, it's like a big event. Um, so I, I kind of like, I like that trajectory. I really just like any example of greatness wherever I can find it. Um, and I find that inspiring, even if it's in something completely unrelated to content or creation or marketing. All right. Well, we're out of time today. Listeners, you can find more about James at jamesclear.com. And you can find Mark at markmanson.net. Thanks a ton for coming on, guys. It's awesome. Cool. Thanks, guys. Thanks. See you guys.